They told me I could only be a custodian. They told me I could only be a police officer. They told me I could only be a lawyer. Doctor. Performer. Financier. Sex worker. Engineer. Warrior. Programmer. Pilot. Doctor. Performer. Financier. Sex worker. Doctor. Engineer. They told me I could only be a hell diver. We're done being told who we can be. Jeremy, today is Ephraim Teahorn Day. Yeah, it is. I was actually uh, <laughs> searching on my Google Calendar yeah. this morning, uh-huh. and it said it was Ephraim Teahorn Day, but it's a, it's a Canadian national holiday. <laughs> so I thought that was, but luckily I turned the Canada switch on. Your dad lives in Vancouver, or lived in Vancouver yeah. for many years, yeah, so you can, yeah. you, did you call him to celebrate with him? Yes, he was celebrating Ephraim Teahorn Day. He didn't know who he was, but he was celebrating. <laughs> he was, nonetheless. I know this is obviously a fan favorite character, a uh, character that you and I like for different reasons, but we like him quite a bit. And... We were putting the pieces together for this episode, for this out, like we had a few different outlines and we were kind of going through those outlines and we realized that they were kind of boring because all we were doing is just talking about our favorite moments, scenes and chapters that Ephraim was involved in. And I don't think the listeners really need us to tell them how cool he is. Like they, you, you guys, you guys don't need us to just go, Hey, like, remember how cool Ephraim was right there? In our mind, that's just not good podcasting. Um, so we want to do something a little different. So what we did is just starting, what we, you and I do this a lot, Jeremy. We ask ourselves questions about the characters and their significance. And what we did with Ephraim was just start asking ourselves questions. And eventually we got to this one question. I think you brought it up. It was like, why Ephraim? Like, why this character? And then that led to a greater, more global question about Red Rising. And then I was like, well, why Iron Gold at all? Like, why would Pierce Brown open up the wound that he just closed, that he just healed with the end of Morningstar. And for that question of why Iron Gold, you and I both believe that the key to that is mostly held with inside the character of Ephraim. Yeah, Ephraim is a fascinating character. And, and like you said, a big fan favorite. This was my favorite POV um, when I first read the book. I remember these first outlines very well. And you're right. It's like, what moment do you like of Ephraim? And we we elaborate a little more on, on what did it say about his story and his POV. Mm-hmm. But but ultimately, it was not that interesting. And you are also correct in, in the question that it led to is why iron gold? And I think, and this is speculative, but I, I believe that with Pierce Brown being an amazing student of history and an amazing thinker in general, that he was extremely curious about what happens after the fact. Uh, being a big Star Wars fan, you do get this sense of ultimate victory, good versus evil. And in the end, 
you get this just giant celebratory time where Darth Vader is dead and they're playing drums on the stormtroopers' helmets. Yep, yep. And the Ewoks are happy and all is well in the universe. Mm -hmm. And in a similar fashion, I think Pierce actually beat them to it, but in a similar fashion, the Star Wars franchise is actually going back and asking the same questions. Like, at what cost was this rebel uprising? Yeah. And... What does it really look like after? Is it sunshine and butterflies or we know it's not, but so, yeah, so what does definitely. it actually look like for not just for Princess Leia or for Han Solo or the Jedi, right? But what does that cost, what is the burden of that cost rather on the everyday man? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what not only does Pierce ask of iron gold, what is the cost of liberty and who bears the burden? Yeah. And I, and I don't think the other question is like, was it worth it? And ultimately, no one's going to say, <laughs> like, like Mickey says, right? It is a trade-off for security. And no one's going to say that the Reds were better off in slavery or anything no. like that. But it's not a great situation all the same. So it's really examining that delta, that picture holistically. And this is what Pierce wants to know of his own story, right? What's the nuance? What's the gray area in between? Like we've been talking about with Darrow. Mm -hmm. And Ephraim, like the same way I, I pointed to those other characters, is your everyday man, is the key to that question. Yeah. So what I always found so interesting about Ephraim, or rather not always, but what I've come to find something so interesting about Ephraim is that we have this story. There's this gulf in this story that's huge and we all know it. We just don't necessarily think about it all the time as we're reading Red Rising or like the, Red, the greater series, I should say, you have the Reds, you have Darrow, you have Lycos, you have Eo, you have a lot of Red characters that kind of are along for the ride with him. And obviously that's kind of just like a more humble, more, you know, a smaller vantage point of the world. And then you have that gold, you have that top of the pyramid. And that's kind of where most of the main characters, most of the characters we even love are at. And you have that kind of throne room view, the White House view, the big grand scope. But what's in the middle? What's between that? And you like, so we finally have an answer. Like we finally have, I guess even Pierce Brown has a solution to that. Like what's between that? Like Ephraim is between that. And it's not just his character, but the characters that he brings along for the ride. Because a lot of times reds bring reds along for the ride. And a lot of times golds bring golds for along for the ride. But Ephraim brings greens. He has Sira and Kobachi. He has Volga. He has uh, Dano. And he has Lyria kind of at certain points too. He has an alter ego that we'll talk about later. He has, there's a plethora of things that are happening. Other, you know, a pink, obviously the Duke of Hands is unlocked through this, through his uh, POV. You have a lot of different characters getting shine. You have the effects of it in that kind of that middle ground, the space between reds and golds. And I think that was an obvious area of exploration for Pierce to go through. So Ephraim is this access point to see these characters from the middle. And it, it'd be wrong, rude, and bad to say that Ephraim is a device for Pierce Brown to explore that. The character is so much more, has so much more depth, has so much more gravity, has so much emotion inside of him. He's so real as a person and what he struggles with. But in some ways he does, I guess kind of a way, gets to be a device just by his proximity to these other characters. Yeah, he absolutely is a device. <laughs> like, I think it's important to recognize that. But like you said, he's not only a device, right? There, there's a dual function, if not multiple functions beyond that. But in that basic function, yes, like Pierce needed 
a POV in order to explore the center. Because mm -hmm. like you said, you have the throne room or the White House kind of vantage point where you have Darrow's POV, you have Lysander's POV. These are sufficient to kind of cover that same territory he's already been doing. And who does the red Darrow hand the baton to is Lyria, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so that's really an extension, I think, of what did it look like post-fall of society for those same reds that came out of the mines, right? This is very much an extension of the same thing. But like you said, what's the access point? How do we actually get to that center? I think that gray is the best <laughs> mode yeah. to go with there. And I don't even think, I mean, listen, technically speaking, I'm wrong when I say this, but in my heart of hearts, I don't actually see grays as a low color. Mm -hmm. They are esteemed. Um, they don't seem to be in abject like subjectivity so much as like obsidians are. Yeah. Um, they're, they're named as like uh, kind of almost like adjacent to family members in, in like large peerless families. Um, they're notable like war heroes, right? Security yeah. details. And like you said, they also visit pinks and brothels. They, <laughs> they yeah. rub elbows with blues on ships and, and greens, right? And yeah, they, they touch all these points. And I think one of the great tie-ins that brings Ephraim particularly beyond just that basic like tool that Pierce used for the middle exploration is that he roots it in Trig. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's what brings that human element to us because everybody loves Trig. Everybody read about, you know, the scene of Trig and Holiday and and then you lose Trig so quickly and to the death hat even. Yeah. You know, everybody, including Pierce, wanted Trigg to live on, wanted a Trigg story, wanted to see what his life looked like. Mm -hmm. And it's like, by extension, we get this incredibly beautiful, well-written, and very flawed character of Ephraim. Yeah. I have a note here that um, I have written down, and it's it's about Ephraim, but I think it actually, again, it's these parallels we're exploring about Ephraim and Iron Gold at large. And again, this is probably not the best phrasing. It's just what I wrote, but I'll, I'll explain myself as I go. But I believe, believe that the two have in common, especially Ephraim and through Ephraim, you have a broader emotional reckoning for all the people in the world. And Ephraim specifically, he has this, I mean, you know, he tried to kill himself in this book, hmm. the end of chapter 14, because of the heartache and the hardship that he's gone through of losing his husband and how, how awful that is. And I know that a lot of us, you know, you and I, We've lost people and what that does to us and how that affects you and how it plagues you and how it takes years and years and years, if not ever, to be able to let go of that. And it was kind of because of the war in this book. Then you start thinking and just like you start doing that mind exploration of like, this is just Ephraim's story. But in Pierce's headcanon, or if you're just in your own headcanon, who else lost people because of the war in this book? This war that's been happening for 10 full years. We have in the intro, the prologue of this book, we have six blocks of tenement housing destroyed. Just people, regular people, just obliterated in seconds. How many people were affected from that? How many people lost loved ones in that bombing? Uh, and Ephraim is that common everyday person that just gets affected by this war uh, you know, he doesn't have superpowers. He's not a gold. He, I mean, he has, yeah, he does have some kind of superpowers, <laughs> but not in the way that we think of golds. Golds are essentially superheroes in a lot of ways. But this is a person that just is affected so deeply and so emotionally cut 
by the happenings of this book and the things that happened before the book that are off the page. And I feel like he just embodies that. He represents that. And Trig is that representation for him. But I just, I can't help but look outward and the kind of look into my own headcanon of how many other people were affected by this war. And you kind of see that. There's moments where you see with Lyria that he has conversations with her about the great effect that this whole war has had on people. And I find that, again, these two things, they parallel each other with the why from why iron gold and kind of rather what the two things have in common. Yeah, and I, I want to stay on the prologue. I, I love that you went there. It, it reminds me of the little orange girl in the prologue. And what she represents, this innocence, this absolute hope, uh, we see her, you know, fog up a window with her breath and then draw a scythe. And she is in that tenement housing that you described. Yeah. She is one of those that presumably is killed, wishing, hoping for liberty and ends up with death. I think that these introductory questions, these little prods that Pierce was giving in the prologue were his setup of kind of asking the, that, what does the everyday person look like? Because the scene is set like a normal scene. It's just a city with fishmongers selling at, at, at the harbor and they're on a subway system and they're in a school, right? The setting is so normal yeah. that we know Pierce is beginning to form this. And I think when the girl dies, it's almost like, again, that baton that we talked about between Lyria and, and Darrow. It's almost like the orange girl hands the baton to Ephraim. Hmm. And it's like, you know, you are the one who lived through all of it. Now, I don't know how hopeful Ephraim really was. I mean, we know that he was involved in the rising. Could have been just for his love of Trig. I, I don't know exactly. Most likely. Yeah. But, but he had some sort of hope, some sort of buy-in at some level. And it got dashed to pieces, mm -hmm. like you said. It caused deep loss, deep hurt. Uh, it caused a hatred for gold society. It caused a lot of what if questions inside of him that that bordered on exactly what I was saying. Where, you know, Mickey uh, posits like, "Do you think we'd really be better off free? Uh, right now, we have security, we have yeah. certainty in our lives. We know what tomorrow looks like." And Ephraim is sort of that character who keeps clanging that gong of like look, it's not better for me. It's worse. Yeah. I, I am worse off now. And it's a fascinating vantage point to be able to look at, to really, I mean, for Pierce to bring in drug abuse into the series as a real thing and a real struggle that we have to read about and get through with his character is absolutely wonderful. And you brought up Lyria. She has a real impact too, mm -hmm. the camp. But Unlike Lyria, who, you know, depression and, and these real mental, like, drug abuse and stuff, this isn't about weak-mindedness, but, but Lyria is so strong, but Ephraim has this weight, this burden that he is being afflicted by, where, mm -hmm. where Lyria is not. Hers is more of, like, these physical conditions to me, and Ephraim is more of that psychological and emotional burden being dealt with. And so I think, like, Pierce, between these two characters, is able to separate this and actually analyze both effects. Yeah. And both Lyria and Ephraim do play ping pong in a lot of ways, like you just said, and, and kind of that way. But I want to go back to something you were kind of hinting at and kind of getting into before you invoked Lyria is Ephraim's POV really does showcase for the, the whole world, the whole book of Iron Gold, but him specifically, that violation of personal and global justice. You have 
the Hyperion trials. These are things that aren't necessarily fully explored, but talked about kind of almost in a flashback sequence through Ephraim's POV. Ephraim, it's, it's, he's a part of this group called the Scar Hunters. He's going and hunting down the society remnant golds that are war criminals. And he had friends and, and members killed by these golds in that process. And he, you know, he has flashbacks to those scary moments with that bone saw that that's comes up a few times in his, uh, his POV. But either way, what I'm really getting at here is that you have these Hyperion trials and it's supposed to be this reckoning for these golds that were causing so much harm and hurt to all these people and the slavers. And ultimately, what, what do they get? They get to go free because they have information about the society. And so you have Mustang just allowing these people to essentially walk because of they have that information. They're able to trade that for their freedom. And just that seething hatred that Ephraim has, I think that should be our hatred too. People shouldn't be able to act that way and almost get rewarded. But again, it's a violation of justice for him, for Trigg, for so many others. And I think in a way, Pierce is putting up a mirror up to us too and kind of going like, how do you feel about that? That is the nature of the book is Pierce is asking himself questions, Mm -hmm. but on a larger scale, his readers. And again, I will invoke history and Pierce because I think this is most likely and primarily based on the Nuremberg trials, Mm -hmm. but he switches it up, right? So instead of Nazi Germany already having fallen, uh, Hitler already being dead, and being able to have that full reckoning, any Nazi officer or party head or mm-hmm. anything like that that was brought into the trials got their due justice, which is what you're talking about. But Pierce tweaks it a little bit, right? He's like, well, now you know your Hitler character is not dead. Uh, the Nazi party as a whole has not fallen. In fact, the remnant of them has just fled to the core. Because yeah. this is really our and setting And they're now. getting stronger. And they're getting stronger, right? Yeah. And, and it's like... Now we're going to up the ante on asking you these questions like, is it okay to trade those kind of favors, those sort of freedoms, that that exoneration to some of these lower uh, officer levels, right? Because we're not talking about some of the top brass. Yeah, Ash Lord, Grimace yeah, family yeah, stuff. Right, yeah. exactly. We're talking about just random peerless scarred that served. Unnamed, in yeah. That, in that remnant. And for vital information – for a possibility to bring a universal reckoning to the universe uh, or to the solar system, rather, um, is it worth exoneration of a few low peerless scarred in that sense? And I'm not going to answer that question. I mean, we could go down that rabbit hole. I'd have to give it more thought. But I, I just, all I want to do is point out that, like, this is what Pierce is playing with here. Yeah. Like, what, because, we, like, again, like, look if you, if you twisted the Nazi history. And the, these Jewish families that were looking for that, that solace, that justice to come and nothing could be undone, but what they could get, they wanted and deserved. Switch that up a little bit. And now Pierce is like doubling down on this thing, making it hard for us. Mm-hmm, for sure. And Jason to this is also just like the obvious thing we see in Ephraim's POV is like that syndicate rise. You see that kind of that, that one of those power vacuums getting sucked in because the world is in such disarray in a lot of ways because even the even the republic has these fractures in it that are they're starting to you're, we're starting to see that in iron gold and by the next book we fully see those fractures but you have like this really interesting things about the world through Ephraim's pov you have i mean one thing that sticks out to me a lot is 
when Ephraim and Holiday in chapter 14, they go to a bar and Ephraim almost gets in a fight, almost gets beat up like really <laughs> bad. But Holiday kind of breaks up the fight, throws these dudes. Um, it's been a while. I believe there was like a, a golden Octavia is the name of the coin or the, or the credit. Mm-hmm. And Ephraim notes internally that this is something, you know, this is old currency, but it's still the acceptable currency. The Republic is trying to mint new currency, but it just isn't working. And you're like thinking, well, I'm thinking, <laughs> what else have they tried and failed at in this time period? But there's something interesting about that little sentence, that passing sentence of just how the world just isn't working in iron gold. And it's through, again, through that Ephraim POV. I like that question because, again, we can look at other sources, right? Of course, the Republic probably put out or at least attempted to put out some sort of currency. In a similar way, um, you know, for our American listeners, after the American Revolution, there were all these different attempts, all these different currencies floating around. You know, what are they backed by? What are the, like, what's the true value here? And I think in this sense- <laughs> I want to like, make a crypto joke, but I'll stop. <laughs> in, in this sense, it's like, that's why the Octavia is still accepted. There's at least this like remaining- uh, belief that there is actual value backing that currency mm-hmm. because the greater society, the greater republic now, we're not sure if we trust you with our economy yet. Yeah. You know, weird, huh? It's like we, you freed us. We voted in delegates. We've done all this, but the currency thing, the, the economy thing, not quite settled yet because, like you said, there's this power vacuum. And it's not just. Um, the obvious, right? The the political uh, play that we're getting here with the Red Hand and the Syndicate and the Core, and right, you have all those forces. But what's underneath are all those layers of strata that we have within our normal society that normally go unseen, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about it: the psychological, we have the physical, we have the economic now, and. Th- I'm just gushing now because like, this is why I love iron gold so much yeah. because Pierce doesn't hold back. He's like, no, let's examine everything. What are the true effects? What's the cost of Liberty and who bears it? Yeah. And again, this is Ephraim's Ephraim gets to do that. He gets to mm-hmm. like lead the charge in that specific way. And that's what makes him so fascinating along with the other cool things. Ephraim actually is probably the most, he's easily the most action oriented character in this book. There's what, how many, let's just count real fast. I mean, I'm doing something top of my head. Uh, there's a heist in the beginning, the Sword of Selenius. Nope. That's what he does. Okay. Then we have, what else do we have? Then we have a major uh, crazy action scene. It's kind of quasi action where he's getting interrogated and he almost gets his hand chopped off by the Duke of Hands. That's just a really suspenseful moment, yeah. I should say. Well, the bar fight's kind of action. Bar, yeah, yeah, you know, Sandwich bar, bar fight in there. Yeah, yeah. So bar fight-ish <laughs> kind of stuff or almost bar fight, whatever, yeah. either way. And then you have uh, you have the kidnapping of the kids, mm-hmm. which is insane. That's like biggest, I think that's probably the biggest action set piece in the book. Oh, yeah. Then you have... Uh, you have it happen all over again. Like, right, he goes and breaks him out. <laughs> like, he, he, so he does that tw- effectively twice. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm missing something. But either way, that's like four or five yeah. huge action scenes from the character of Ephraim. It's like Ocean's Eleven times five in one POV. There we go. Boom. And he's doing all these action scenes, but he's also doing all these other things, like you said. Like, he's just kind of leading the charge in all these ways. The last thing I want to talk about before we take a break with Ephraim that is very unique to this book specifically is that this is the first time that Pierce Brown gives us a non-protagonist POV. We did not get that obviously in the first, I mean, people have their opinions about Daryl. Um, we're not going to get into that right now, but a lot of people think, you know, there's a, there's villainous tendencies there. And even you and I can be swayed that way at times too. Um, but 
I don't want to talk about Lysander right now because either, either way, hey, let's, let's, I'm going to qualify we'll this. Time. <laughs> we'll have, yeah, we have time next week. But either way, let's talk about this. Either way, Ephraim enters the story before Lysander. So therefore, technically speaking, <laughs> he is the first non-protagonist POV That's right. in Red Rising. But he, he really truly is. It's using a character that isn't a hero or it's supposed to be a hero. And I was thinking about that. And I was like, that's, that's really just, it's interesting to just kind of get to that point where Pierce is wanting to explore the world through a different, again, using kind of some words and phrases we've used before, access point. But I was kind of just thinking about him in that way. And I know uh, you and I have played D&D and uh, a lot of people listening have, but you know that chart, there's like that alignment chart. You have like the lawful good, and then you have like the lawful neutral, lawful evil, neutral good, true neutral, neutral evil, and chaotic, you know, good, chaotic neutral, chaotic evil. Everyone gets that. Okay, sorry. That was a long explanation. But you know, we have like a character and you can kind of align. I'll just use uh, Darrow as an example. We do that alignment and, you know, we know that Darrow is that chaotic good. Yeah. Because he is a good character, but he's chaos. And because of chaos, that leads him down bad roads sometimes. But it's a character that's truly chaotic neutral, but he is chaotic. Mm-hmm. And that's why yeah, they even have the episode that's titled Thieves of Chaos. And he earns that moniker through the Duke of Hands. He's told that he is a he is a, uh, a thief of chaos. And there's so that like all the things we just talked about a moment ago, all those big action set pieces, all that craziness, the, the character that is on drugs, a character that tried to commit suicide, a character that is literally going through three major heists in this book. He's just pure chaos, but he's also really fun and important and brings about these questions of liberty at the same time. Yeah. I like that you invoke uh, d and I wonder if Pierce was like rolling. We some, know that we know Pierce is a, a D&D player out. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is absolutely chaotic neutral. I, I think you're dead on with that point. And to be able to explore through this sort of perspective that Pierce allows is fascinating. And once again, in, invoking Lyria, we already talked about her and her connection with Ephraim. And I think what's fascinating and fun with Ephraim, if we're kind of getting away from like, what's the modality of his POV to himself, is that he really is multiple personalities. Mm-hmm. He has this chaotic neutral, but then as he interacts with Lyria, you get this sense of like, we may have an inkling of who Ephraim used to be. Yeah. That is a great setup. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about Philippe. I want to take a moment and tell you about our new sponsor, Neuro. Neuro makes great tasting gum and mints that don't just freshen your breath, but they give you a boost of energy or a relaxing calm. My favorite is the Honey Lemon Calm and Clarity. These have been super good as after-dinner mints because they satisfy my sweet tooth, but they also have vitamin D3, GABA, and L-theanine, which help you de-stress and relax. All Neuro Mints and gum are vegan, sugar-free, aspartame-free, and gluten-free. And right now, when you order from their website, getneuro.com, you can get 15% off your next order with our promo code, Hail Reaper Pod. So go get some today. You will not regret it. That's getneuro.com, G E T N E U R O, and use our promo code at checkout for 15% off Hail Reaper Pod. Jeremy, right before break, you teased the conversation about Philippe. This is a conversation you and I have had a few times now 
but now we get to have it on microphone, which is gonna be exciting because this is uh, this just makes this character work. This whole Philippe thing, it makes it just so much more real, tangible, um, alive to me too, relatable. Ephraim is not a relatable character by no means. Like he he unlocks the greater science fiction world. He you know has the interactions with Greens and Kobachi and all these things like like contacts that play TV shows. Like, I mean, we don't have, there's nothing really relatable in some senses about him, some senses. There's things that are deeply relatable about him. I think Philippe is arguably the most, uh, just kind of makes him feel very human. And so I'm excited to talk to you about uh, those things and kind of what uh, what makes this character so cool. Yeah, I think right off the bat, the first thing that pops out to me is like, why do we even like this character? Like you mm-hmm. said, he's chaotic neutral, but he's a bad dude. Like if, yeah. you, if you look at it in the grand scheme of things, he has a serious drug addiction. He's a criminal. Um, you hardcore look at, criminal for he's sure. He's a hardcore criminal. Yeah. You look at Volga and she loves him mm-hmm. and he gives zero back to her. He is terrible, not a friend whatsoever. He's not a good person. Yeah. <laughs> but- we brought up the scene, the bar scene. And in that scene, there's a flashback. It's one of my favorite scenes in the Pope, by the way. But there's a flashback where he meets Trig, mm-hmm. right? And it's this <laughs> it's this wonderful scene. Very it, sentimental. Very sentimental. It's cute, right? It talks about like, I don't remember the exact phraseology, but it's like doughy, like smiles. And it, yeah. it has this very- and Trig, I think, is wearing- too big of clothes, like his clothes don't quite fit him or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it has yeah. this very like like dorky kind of like uh, rom-com almost feel, <laughs> like in a weird way, but Pierce uh-huh. makes it work, you yeah. know? And when you juxtapose those two characters against each other, it doesn't make sense. They do, it's like oil and water, those two. Mm-hmm. I agree. So we enter Philippe. Mm-hmm. It's a character that feels like he very well could have been that old Ephraim yeah. that we get through that flashback. You know, we get these, I mean, one or two of those flashbacks where he's talking about that connection, you know, spending all night, they close the bar down that night. And just like that, that sentimentality that he expresses. And that's the interesting thing about Ephraim. He is rather sentimental inwardly, but outwardly he's, you know, he just, well, he's just mean. He's <laughs> a mean dude. Um, but I think with Philippe, you get to expose that sentimentality and he gets to do that with Lyria. And in a lot of ways, it's because we know that, uh, like, Lyria reminds him a lot of Trig. Mm. Just the type of person that Lyria is, is very much a lot of the type of person that Trig is in some ways, at least that we know of. And there's a couple quotes here that I want to visit uh, to kind of really get at some stuff. And, and I'll, I'll kind of uh, read the quotes for you and I want to get your reaction, Jeremy. There's this quote here in chapter 31. This is Ephraim's POV. And then I'm going to, right after that, I'm going to read a quote from inside Lyria's POV in chapter 29, but they, so I'm going to read them in reverse order and order of appearance, but I think that that's the way that the miss makes most sense. So here we go. We have Ephraim here. This is him talking inwardly uh, to the reader, not outwardly to uh, anyone around. I wish she would stop telling me her story. I can tell she's kept this pain locked in a dark chest inside her, just like I did, but I'm not the good person she is. I want her to be a little nasty creature. Want her to see the ugliness I know that everyone's got inside them, seeding out of her eyes, spewing out of her mouth. But all that comes are little tears. We're not alike. I hoard my pain because no one will understand it. 
She's just been looking for someone she can trust, someone to share it with. Not me, stupid girl. I don't deserve it, but she keeps going, and I feel heavier and blacker on the grass, mm. wishing I took more Zolodon. <laughs> Heartbreaking end to that sentence, or that, that sentiment. Here's Lyria. This is her reaction to what she sees as she's telling Ephraim about her family, about the hardship, about the hurt she's experienced. This is what she's seeing in return. His silence is that of a man wrestling with something inside himself. The battle plays out in the muscles of his jaw and the shifting of his hands against the bench. After a time, not knowing which side has won, I follow his eyes to the Iron Reaper. So this is the fun part about Ephraim because he is an arc. It's very much this redemption arc story that Bette Pierce tells. And we talked about sort of uh, modes or devices, right? And and after really thinking about it and, and reading through this a couple of times, there are kind of in my mind three characters, right? Mm-hmm. And we obviously know Philippe and we know Ephraim. And Ephraim is not who is not the real Ephraim. It, mm-hmm. It's sort of fake, emotionally void, uh, shell of a man, mm-hmm. Ephraim, right? And that's who we're getting. And the question is, is who was that in the scene with Trigg? That's the real Ephraim. That's who we desire to know. And that's where Pierce takes us over two books. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we take that arc all the way and we get to as close as we're going to get to it. Philippe is that access point, is that glimpse into who Ephraim could have been. Because it's not a exact thing. I, I, I'm not going to claim that whatsoever. That's why I'm saying there's three. But... As Lyria unlocks this, there's two things going on, right? One, you mentioned Lyria, and the other is the Zolodone. Because in order to play this, right, he's playing an emotionally present, uh, loving, affectionate, right? All these- Empathetic. Empathetic. We can go on with adjectives forever. But this is who Philippe is. There is no way that a dead shell of a man can play that part. And so Ephraim has to go cold turkey or at least in some degree dial the Zolodone way, 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 way back mm-hmm. in order to uh, encompass that. And this is part of the twofold therapy, right? <laughs> and, and the start of that arc is like he is emotionally vulnerable now, right? He mm-hmm. can feel in these moments. And you can see from your quotes that you read that he hates the fact that he can feel. And of course, the other side, and we already talked about Lyria, so like you said, we're not going to go fully in, even though I want to. But Lyria really plays that psychologist. She knows, as you said, she can see the wrestling. She can see the tension there. And what does she do? She continues to drive. She's, she's like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to drive. I'm going to find this. And it's the EQ that she has. We talked at full length. Listen to the episode. But you wouldn't be able to have that if... Ephraim wasn't emotionally present in the moment. So to me, it's really those two kind of tandem things happening at the same time that gives us Philippe and the glimpse to the real Ephraim. Yeah. And that's like, again, like that third character you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's like almost the blend of the two kind of pushing forth a new character. Yeah, it's somewhere in there, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, It's in the tension somewhere. We all, I think, maybe not, but we all like love 
Ephraim in some way, shape or form, right? Like, I don't know. I, I do. I hope that all the people listening do. I have like yeah. a struggle with him. I have a character battle. Like, I just think he's a terrible person a lot of times. I do. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's fair. He's or He tells us that he is in a lot of ways. But then you have these quotes where he just feels, I, I hate, I hate this. I hate hearing this about someone, anyone, fictional or not. He says, and I feel heavier and blacker on the grass, hmm. wishing I took more drugs. Because that's the only way that he feels like he's whole again. But he has like these people around him. He has Volga. He has Lyra even. Even though he's playing her, he has her. This access point, this person that is really does care about that character, Philippe. Whether she knows it or not, she cares about Ephraim. Because Philippe is telling the story of Trig and Ephraim. One of ways. Yeah. He's exploring and we're discovering that hardship of losing his husband and what that meant for him. And I just like, I, I really wish for Ephraim, you know, better things in a way. But I think that's, again, this is not what the book is. The book is that that hardship. The book is the toll, like the, again, that toll of liberty or the toll of the pursuit of liberty, I should say. Yeah. So even in a fictional character's fictional character, <laughs> seriously, you see what it costs. You see how hard it is. And Pierce goes that many levels deep to show you what that liberty has cost people. And, you know, there's a quote I kind of cut out, but there's a backside of this. And I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase right at that chapter 29, Lyria. And it says, I follow his eyes to the iron reaper. So to deflect because, because he knows that Lyria is staring at him and he knows that Lyria can read him right. because of her EQ. Mm-hmm. So he kind of tries to change the subject, change the atmosphere. He looks at the Iron Reaper and says, you know what I see when I look at him? A thief. And he then you know, asks Lyria, because he's, he's trying to move off of this real emotion that he's having, because <laughs> yeah. he doesn't want to have real emotions. He says, I bet that's you know, a sin to you because he's your savior. And Lyria's like, he's not my savior. And they, they also, that's another commonality these two characters share, which they share commonalities in abundance. Mm-hmm. But they look at F, they look at Darrow, excuse me, as not the savior, but also someone that's done them a great injustice. Yeah, it really allows, I think, Ephraim to continue to open up and soul search, if you will. Mm-hmm. You said it a while back in the episode, you, you talked about this idea of a mirror or that this POV is reflective um, to a degree. I think that there is a massive attraction to this by readers. And it might be sort of that reflection of themselves, or it could be a reflection of a loved one. And even if it's not drug abuse or anything like that, like the, this thing in, the, in this Ephraim POV quote that you read, it talks about like he wants her to be a nasty creature to see ugliness seething out the eyes and spewing out her mouth. What he's saying is that's what he believes himself to be. Mm -hmm. He wants her to be like him. Yeah. And he sits there when he begins to awaken to his his real self. And he wants to put that to death. He wants Mm -hmm. to kill, right, that emotional state with the Zolodone. And I think there's... There's that little crevice in all of us, that that natural uh, kind of introspective look at that ugly side of ourselves, at that side that we want everyone else to be except for us almost in a way, mm-hmm. right? And, and we want people to match us because we, we know we're really there and we want to move on from that. And I think just to sum it up, like, I, I think that Ephraim connects with us 
because of that nature that he has and the fact that everyone wants a redemption arc to their own life. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to progress through that, to heal and to become something other than what you view yourself as, right? And, and Ephraim is so attractive because this is what Pierce gives us, exactly that, right? He, along comes his psychologist, right? Kicks the Zolodone out, accidentally flushes it down the toilet or whatever you see in the movies. And, and suddenly he starts to heal mm-hmm. and he realizes that he's losing that nastiness. Nothing's seething out of his eyes anymore. And by the end of Dark Age, you, you get that beautiful arc. For sure. And something you said is interesting and something that I want to express just on our behalf. So I think that you and I both believe that everyone deserves that redemption arc. Mm, yeah. Fictional or otherwise. I really, we really believe that. You and I have that worldview that everyone deserves a redemption arc. And a lot of people don't agree with us on that. That's okay. But I think that even in books, you and I can't help but take our worldview into books like this and root for characters to receive that redemption arc. And we didn't, you know, get there all the way in certain past books in this series. It's great that Ephraim, even inside of Iron Gold, gets something like that. You know, we all know the end of the story in Iron Gold. He goes and he saves the kids. Yeah. He does. He saves mm-hmm. them. You know, he rescues them out there. There's a lot of hilarity in that moment where he's just like, you know, arguing with, uh, um, with oh my gosh, Electra, And they're just kind of jabbing at each other back and forth. Pax is kind of like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> like, and, yeah. But he's able to do it. And they're able to... I don't know. There's, and I always go, we talked about it last episode, but I can't help but bring it up again because it, it just revolves around these three specific characters. There's this moment where Lyria, once again, is they're sitting in that, um, you know, the airport hangar and it's Lyria, Holiday, and Ephraim. He, what she says, she talks about Triggs, like Triggs saw a good man in you. So be that good man. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. And in a way that's, I think she's giving him permission to be Philippe, more Philippe, I should say. And he's never been given that permission in some ways to, to seek his own redemption arc because he doesn't believe he deserves it, but she does. And she's offering it to him in a way. And he gets to go and be more like Philippe because we believe Philippe is more of the old Ephraim. We get to see that happen. And it's, again, you have that blend come out towards the end of the book. Yep. It's that blend of like, he's, more virtuous and more caring and more sentimental a little bit, but he's still that funny. He's a bit of a ruffian. A ruffian heart. gray yeah. all at the same time, <laughs> breaking those kids out. Yeah. And again, you know, you, you teased it and then dark age, you get even more of that. Just um, great freaking character, whether you love him or hate him, still a great freaking character. Full on villain to hero. Yeah. Uh, you have to love it, right? Anyone who yeah. loves an underdog story, if you like uh, uh, Disney's the miracle on ice. <laughs> What the heck? What are you talking about? Then you'll love this. Okay. Uh, we just jumped the shark officially. Uh, anyway. I think so. Let's, uh, let's do a little nerd talk. Let's just go to Nerd Talk's correction desk. Down low? Yeah, Nerd Talk uh, Midnight Edition oh, no. uh, at the end of the episode. Yeah. We're, we're going to go to the Nerd Talk correction desk. Uh, so you brought this up. I completely missed it. But you, but, you, know, you brought it to my attention, and I think you owe America... <laughs> and not not just America, but every and country. And the Netherlands. The, 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 Nether- the yeah, two. Specific, really the two Specifically, of them. America and the Netherlands. Yes. A huge apology because our favorite, are you our shared favorite Star Wars property probably ever, which is Andor, which we talked about probably too much, yes. often on podcasts. You said the name of the creator and writer incorrectly. 
which yes. we, are, we which we are now collectively net the Netherlands and America are scolding you, and we demand an apology for saying his name incorrectly. So why don't you go ahead and apologize? And also, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say his name correctly. Okay, America, Netherlands. I formally do apologize for getting it wrong. I it it was like one of these. You, you wrote that, and I saw you wrote that down. You just that's all you wrote. You pulled up a sheet of paper and wrote that. That's all you wrote down. That's that's that's, that's your apology. That's my apology. That's, okay, that's short. Okay. I, so in the moment, like, you you have these brain dead things, right? And I read it on the screen. You and I have talked about Tony many times, and I, I swear we just call him by his first name now. Yeah, because yeah. it's safer. Um, <laughs> I think I called him Tony Gilfin or something like that. I don't know where <laughs> I got that from. His name Say, is Tony Gilroy. Thank you. And you know what? Not only do I apologize uh, to those two great countries, but I also <laughs> thank Australia for hanging in there and giving me patience, mm-hmm. for reassuring me, and mm-hmm. for giving me the latitude to come back to the corrections desk and fix this because Australia was in my corner. There you go. Thank you, Australia. Shouts to you. Uh, shouts to Netherlands and uh, shouts to America, I guess. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's wrap up the episode there on that wild That was note. our nerd talk. Wow. Yeah, that was All nerd right. talk. Um, so anyway, well, we'll be back talking about everyone's favorite character, Lysander Alun. Until next time, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. The Hail Reaper team is Jeremy, Mathar, Janelle, and myself, Philip. All artwork was done by friend of the podcast, Jeff Halsey. Our theme music, The Gordian Knot, was composed by Jacob Albaum with production and sound design by Tim Mount. A huge thank you to Pierce Brown for creating the Red Rising Saga and fostering our passion for books. And thanks to all you listening, especially our patrons. If you want to learn how to become a Hail Reaper Howler and get additional content, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Hail Reaper. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at Hail Reaper Pod and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others like you discover the show and is much appreciated. Until next time, Hail Reaper.